how do you stand in a checkout line with people who were trying to kill you just, just last year? There's got to be, he says, some measure of forgiveness, of releasing of the debt that they owe you. This person standing next to you in the checkout line killed your brother. He owes you your brother. He took your brother. But your brother can't come back. Not coming back. He can't pay that price. So if we want to find the beloved community, if we want to live within the beloved community, we have to. We have to do the hard work. This is the hard work of those who have lived on the other side of oppression, on the underside of it. We have to do the hard work of releasing the debt that cannot be paid by the ones who oppressed us. All right, let's do this. How are you, dear friends and damn givers? I'm Nick LaPara, and this is the Let's Give a Damn podcast. As many of you already know, this is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn in so many amazing ways, people who are living meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play on that little mobile phone of yours and for showing up this week. I hope you're doing well, and I'm so very glad you're here. My guest this week is a return guest. When her team hit me up because she had a brand new book coming out, it was a very, very easy yes. Last time I had Lisa Sharon Harper on the podcast, we had a blast, and many of you hit me up after the fact to tell me that you thought she was amazing too. Lisa is so wise, so full of empathy, so full of strength, and I'm glad she is back this week. Lisa is the founder and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. She is the author of several books, including The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, a book we discussed in our last conversation, and her brand new book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. In this book, Lisa draws on her lifelong journey to know her family's history, recover the beauty of her heritage, expose the brokenness that race has wrought in America, and cast a vision for collective repair. In this conversation, we walk through the book, which has three important parts to it. Part one is the roots, part two is the resistance, and part three is the repair. Former podcast guest and fellow damn giver Kirsten Powers said of this book and of Lisa, Harper is one of the nation's most critical voices on the issues of race, gender, faith, and justice, and I couldn't agree more. I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation during Black History Month. Friends, get ready because you're about to drink from a fire hose in the best kind of way. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with the incredible Lisa Sharon Harper. Let's go. Lisa Sharon Harper, it's so glad to have you back on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Nick LaPara, I have to say, I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> I really have. It's, it was really awesome talking with you last time. And so I'm looking forward to this one. Well, I'm glad 
for you to say that on mul- for multiple reasons. One is I love talking with you, and it's always it's always good to be you know uh, in conversation with someone who also wants to talk back. But also, this is there's a lot of things going on this month, uh, including the launch <coughs> of your book just recently, and so mm-hmm. you've been having conversations each and every day. So for you to say that you are looking forward to this and that you've been ho- waiting for it uh, means a lot because I'm sure you're just tired of talking, aren't you? <laughs> Well, you know, I have to say it really has been a whirlwind. And for like the last two weeks, I have had convos every single day. You're exactly right. Um, But at the same time, I mean, you know, I can never tire of talking about my family and also the lessons that I learned over 30 years of research. So I feel like in some ways, this is payback for the 30 years of research. So I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time. Fantastic. That's good to hear. So last time uh, you you have now joined an elite group. I'm kind of joking, but an elite group of 10 or 10 or 15 people that have come back on for a round two on the podcast out of 200 wow. and something. And I was wow. so when, when your team hit me up and said, hey, the new book's coming out. Can we talk about it on your show? It was an easy yes. But the last time we talked was June of 2020 on the podcast. Wow. So much has happened since then. Oh, my goodness. Those those were the first, you know, three, four months of the pandemic. And at that point, even Mm -hmm. we were our we were told this thing will be over by then. So we Mm -hmm. thought, I mean, again, what we were hearing the media and such. Yes, this thing was still here and it was present. But we were thinking, oh, this thing's got, you know, a couple more months you know, it's mm-hmm. it's summertime, they were saying, so everybody's going to be getting outside. This thing's going to go away. It's not cold yeah. anymore. Yeah. And here we are <laughs> in uh, winter of 2022, still dealing yeah. with it. And people are more tired than ever. We have mm-hmm. uh, very sensible, you know, I, I, I've been trying to withhold, um, you know, so many people that I respect have now sort of moved on from the realities of, of us still being in a pandemic and are calling mm-hmm. for things to open up. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not a scientist. I'm trying to listen to them, but I'm not a scientist. So I'm, there's just so much going on still, right? Yeah. Yeah. How are you doing these two years later? Wow. We've been through so much the last couple of years. Like, mm-hmm. how are you doing in your heart and your soul and your mind? Like, I have to tell you, I am healthier. I am a Good. healthier person. <laughs> Because of because of the the cloistering that the pandemic demanded, um, I made a point actually in 2020 to make sure that because now this could be the year that everybody goes you know everybody goes down this could be that year, but I made it a choice to make this the year that I go up, and so I made a choice to to invest in in counseling <laughs> and the funny thing is I wasn't even really feeling the need for counseling beforehand. But my body, my body was holding so much of the tension and I had no, I didn't, I didn't know how to listen to my body beforehand. And so I decided to get somatic therapy. And then in the middle of somatic therapy, I realized, you know, I think I actually want, I want an actual like head therapist, somebody to help me to process all these thoughts. Because part of it is that as you're doing, as I was doing the research into the book and, um, and also writing the book, you're also having to go deep into some of the most painful parts of your family's story. And, um, and I needed help processing that. And I also needed help understanding my life in light of it. And so, so yeah, that I, that I have to say was like the healthiest year of my life because I had, I was working with two therapists in the, in the case, um, in the course of one year. And I did, I, I requested, I never went outside for like several months, not even outside, uh, maybe outside, maybe once, once every other month or so. Um, 
which is not very healthy, but you know what I mean? It was, yeah. it was what was all that we could really do because we were on lockdown in DC. Another thing that happened in the course of those two months is um, not months, but in those two years is that in the middle of it, around August of 2020, um, I started actually writing the, like the rest of the book, the book that the rest of the book that had not been written for the proposal. And in the, in literally the first week of August, when I sat down to write, I started writing the Lawrence chapter, which is the chapter on my mom's father's side. Right. And they all lived here in South Philly. Um, and, 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 and throughout Philadelphia at different points. And I was like, okay, I know that I want to write the story of the eminent domain seizure because the, the city seized his land, um, Hiram, Henry's son's land um, uh, in, the, in the 1950s, uh, late 1950s. And I wanted to write that story. So I needed to find the land. So I checked it out. I looked, I found it. And then I found all these numbers on the map and I realized I was on a Zillow map. <laughs> And I realized, wow, these are actually affordable home owner prices. I could do this. And so I started looking and I found my grandmother's house was for sale. Oh my gosh. It, I know. And we, that was like trauma in our family. We lost that house in 2014 because of the negligence of a cousin. And I won't go into all the details, but just to say that we lost it. So that was real trauma. So I, I text my mom, grandma's house is for sale. She goes, snag it. <laughs> So it turned out we couldn't because there were squatters in the house and that's a whole nother Philadelphia phenomenon. But I did keep looking and I found a place one block away. And it turns out that where I'm sitting right now is one block from where my mother grew up, from my grandmother's house, from my, and two blocks from my, from two separate great grandmother's houses. Like they lived together in this community for 70 years and I've come back. How does that feel to be like in proximity to so much of your, not just history in general, right? Some famous thing that happened or whatever, but your history, it's got to feel, I mean, do you feel them? Do you like, you feel them around you as you're coming and going? I do actually, I do. I mean, I actually go and and walk by their houses often when I'm walking my dog. Um, You know, I have, uh, my mom has told me stories for the book, actually, when I sat, when we sat down over a couple of days and she did an interview for the book. She told me stories of the like things that happened in this neighborhood. So when I walk by, I'm walking. It's a weird thing. It's like I feel like I'm walking through living history because she's still here very much. She lives with me. In fact, I, I in order to avoid her dying of COVID, I said, Mom, you're moving in with me, you know, and how about it? You're going to live in your old neighborhood. So in a way, it's been a really healing experience. And I have to say that when I first was looking at houses and I I found this one. I literally felt like I I heard Hiram say, look, if I could own a block of homes, you can own this home. I had a lie in my head that it wasn't for me, that home ownership wasn't for me. I, I would be a renter for the rest of my life. And because I couldn't do that, I wasn't making enough money. And it turned out I was making fine money. I mean, <laughs> just, I mean, totally. And in fact, I could have done more, but decided decided to um, to, to do enough for us to be well. Now, so I'm here. I love it. Um, this, this therapy, these multiple kinds of therapy that you received in the beginning of the mm-hmm. pandemic, did that, do you directly tie you being able to complete the book in the way that you did to that therapy? Was there something that happened, you know, the opening up physically yes. and mentally allowed you to finish it? 
Yes. I actually, even in the, in the credits at the end, you know, the acknowledgements at the end, um, I do an acknowledgement of country, which is at the beginning and that's different, but the acknowledgements of my community at the end, I don't know that people have ever seen is like six pages long. <laughs> the, the, the audio book um, uh, uh, producers were just like, most people don't read their acknowledgements, but I was like, I want to, I want to make this part of it. I don't know that they actually ended up including it, but you know, I included my two coaches in that. Um, and so, you know, they were, they were just outstanding and, and, and I'm still working with one of them and she's outstanding. And yes, I could not have done the book without them. I really literally couldn't. Um, I'll never forget this one time where I was, I was in, uh, the somatic coaching time and, uh, somatic therapy time with a group. And in the midst of it, I just started to share some of the stories that I was, um, uh, that I, that was in me now, I was really trying to deal with it. And the somatic therapy coach did an exercise with me that helped me to actually hear. She took me basically back to one of my ancestors and allowed my ancestor to talk directly to me in my mind's ear. And, um, for me, for my body to feel the support of that ancestor, it was really, it was deep. <laughs> it was very deep. And, it was not something that I thought was ever possible, but that exercise, um, what, what I learned in the midst of it and in the midst of all of that, that time was that we take on the trauma of the generations that came before mm. because our bodies are literally their bodies. Like we, that, think about that for a minute. Their DNA is what makes us, us. We are not separate from them. We are them. We are them. The only thing that's different is we're living in a different time and we're a compilation and we have our own choices. And so we are our own beings, but they make us. Um, and so we can take on some of the trauma that their bodies held. And I learned that I don't have to do that. Mm. that Leah Ballard released me from her, from holding her trauma. And that was, that was a, it was a sacred moment. It really yeah. was. Yeah. I feel mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's really a beautiful, this, it's a beautiful hard idea to think about. And I don't think we do. I think a lot of people for some mm -hmm. reason, um, maybe you can tell me, I mean, I've thought about it deeply, uh, deeply enough that I think about it all the time, even in my own family, but I don't know the reasons mm -hmm. why people don't do the deep dive work into mm -hmm. our history. It's so mm -hmm. incredibly important to know where we came from and who we came from yeah. Be because as you just so astutely pointed out and, you know, via your therapist, we are carrying that trauma. We're carrying a lot of that shit generation after generation and the universe is hoping that you're the generation that will work through it and actually fix it. Or maybe yes. it's not all bad, but I'm, I'm talking to like the, tr the traumatic stuff. Mm -hmm. At some point, we've got to reckon with it, no matter where we're from. Yeah. A lot of the stuff that, a lot of the history that, that your family has dealt with is not even close to mine because my dad's a, 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 an immigrant from Guatemala. And so, you know, there's a, we, come, we yeah. come from these vastly different paths, but we've mm -hmm. all got stuff that yeah. 
we need to be the ones. We need to be the ones to say it stops here. I'm going to learn yes. about it. I'm going to know it. I'm going to really get to know who I am and where I'm from. Yeah. And, and the things that need to stop in this generation are going to stop. Yes. And, you know, and so it's, it's, it's deep. I think that it, my individual journey in many ways kind of informed the journey that I believe we really need to, to take as a nation. Because as a nation, we have undergone the, the contractions of the Civil War. We have undergone um, the, the trauma of enslavement. We've undergone the trauma of, uh, of exploitation um, and, and the moral injury um, of those who exacted that trauma, who exacted, who, who passed the laws that ensnared whole people groups of us. Um, so there's moral injury and there's trauma that has happened as in mass across our nation. And until we actually deal with how our bodies are holding all of that, um, we will continue down the spiral. We will continue to run off the cliff of democracy and into the hands of fascism and authoritarianism. Um, and you know why? Because high control, high control individuals, high control communities actually feel like safety to the traumatized. Mm. It feels like safety. It feels like, oh, somebody, somebody is going to hold me close and not let me go crazy all over myself, right? Yep. Um, somebody knows what to do and is going to tell me what to do so I don't have to think. But that, that is, that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's basically putting your hands, your, your, your body in Satan's hands and saying, okay, I feel safe with you because you have control. Right. So fascism takes away agency. Fascism takes away the ability for us to make choices toward a better, toward a better world. Fascism crushes the image of God on earth. Fascism is at war with God on earth because God's purpose is that the image of God would flourish and the image of God expressly means on the first page of the Bible in my, in my um, tradition. It means that we are made to exercise agency in the world. That's what it means to be human. So when we run into the hands of authoritarian communities or nations, then what we're doing is we're actually taking ourselves out of the hands of God. And I learned that. I learned that over the last two years. That was one of the lessons, a big lesson. I had a big aha moment that I realized I, I had run into the hands of a very high control evangelical, white evangelical community. Mm. And the reason for that, the reason I did that was because that felt like safety to me because my dad was a very high control man who had been abused by a very high control man, right? So, and that that's actually in the book. There's, there's some reflections that I did in the book with that. I think that when it comes down to it, we have patterns and practices in our nation that have over the course of five centuries, starting with indigenous um, Americans, indigenous people, um, patterns and practices where laws and systems and structures and ways of doing life together were, were enacted in order in every single turn, in order to, in, to create, to protect, and to entrench white male power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when I think about how that happened, that happened for two reasons. One, because 
it was it was the the settler colonialism that brought um, uh, Europeans to this land, particularly the English, and they had they had a system of domination. And it's interesting too. It's like after centuries of domination after domination, nation after nation trying to dominate the other on the European continent, they actually came to understand empire as a way that they could find peace. Right? Empire right. equaled peace to them, but it didn't equal peace to those that they crushed. It it equal peace for the noble, the gentry class, right? So it's that gentry class that found, quote, peace and empire that was granted land in Maryland um, and eventually ended up indenturing my my ancestors. It's that gentry class that actually established the original laws, the first race laws in America. Um, And they established those laws in ways that benefited them. That 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 crushed the image of God in people of African descent, um, and and eventually crushed fortune. My very first American land-born ancestor, whose parents were mixed race, her father was from Senegal, her mother was from was an Ulster Scot, meaning she was um, a Scottish woman living in Ireland, helping the English to plant plantations on Irish land. Um, and then there was an uprising and she and her husband got the heck out of Dodge and came to Maryland. And within a year of, of Sambo game, um, my 10 times or rather eight times great grandfather, 10 generations back, and within a year of Sambo getting here from Senegal, being brought here, they fell in love, had a child and named that child Fortune. Wow. Yeah. The story behind that. I don't know. Why would they name that child, a child born out of wedlock, a child born to a woman who's already married to another man, a mixed race child who's going to bear the brunt of all of the race laws. Why would they name her fortune? Except right here, I think I have an aha, except that the year she was born in 1687, that that year was a respite year. It was a year, not just a year, but like about six or seven years where there was a respite from those race laws. And if your ancestor traced to a white woman, which Fortune's mother was white, then you could not be enslaved or indentured. Now, mm. that law, right? So she actually lived free for the first 18 years of her life. But eventually, you know, the laws changed and they brought her to court post haste. And um, according to the laws that came after her birth, they ended up in indenturing her for 31 years because her parents were not married and they were mixed race. And by the time that she stood in that courtroom in 1705, the laws shook out to say that if Fortune's mother was white, she could not be enslaved. But if her father was black, she would definitely be indentured. And the, the amount of time would matter about you know, whether or not they were married. Um, you know, there's, there's more, there's more to that story. I don't know how much time we have, but the thing is, is that she bore the terror of those first race laws. And that first race law, when it first came down, women, white women were enslaved um, for marrying and having children with black men. That was their way, the gentry class's way of solving the problem they were perceiving on the ground of all the Irish women and Ulster Scott women falling in love and marrying the enslaved black men they were working alongside. And they just were like, oh, you know, clutched their their panties <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah. said, you know, we can't, we can't have this. 
And so they they actually then legislated that white women would be in, enslaved. Isn't that deep? Wow, I didn't know that. Yes, that's, and that's, they were. Really? How, like, yes. what, what kind of numbers are we talking about? They enslaved, well, there, there were 600, um, 600 mixed-race children that were born in Maryland and Delaware alone, all of whom traced back to white women in the colonial era. And so, but it wasn't the entire colonial era that that particular phase of the law existed. That was only for like the first maybe 10, 20 years, um, maybe 10, 15 years. But get this, in the middle of that, they realized that um, at like a few years in, they realized, oh my gosh, planters are now forcing their indentured Ulster Scott and Irish women to marry enslaved black men so that they could then be enslaved and get free labor in until their husband's death and so that their children would be enslaved in perpetuity according to the law. So the, you know, and you can see this all in the in the in the the transformation of the law over time because the General Assembly comes back, the gentry class, the planter class, um, and they they come back and say, oh, we didn't expect this. So you know what we're gonna do? You know what they did, Nick? They took the keys of enslavement and indenture out of the hands of the planters and put those keys into the hands of the church. Of course. So the church then became the manager of enslavement and indenture. They got to decide who got enslaved and who got indentured. And the church also had servants, indentured servants, and had enslaved people, like owned people. And so this is for the first like 150 years of our nation's history before, before the establishment of the U S right before the revolutionary right. war. So uh, there was just a lot that I found in there and, and it changed, it changed because law always shifts with the, with the work on the ground, with what's going on on the ground. So by the time that fortune stands in that courtroom, she is then indentured for 31 years because of the, the mixed race status of her and also the unmarried status of her, her parents. And her children then are indentured. The children that she has, she has multiple children while indentured. Um, and her children are indentured and have multiple children while indentured. And never are there any fathers um, uh, mentioned in any of the court records. Mm-hmm. No fathers. But the law says, by this time, the law says, if you are, by the time of Sarah's indenture, which is Fortune's daughter, if you have a child outside of wedlock um, while you're indentured, you will then, you will be indentured for seven more years and your children will be indentured for 21 years if the father is white and 31 years if the father is black. So here you see the explicit privilege of whiteness. And you also see that the only people who benefit from this are the are white men who then were incentivized to rape and impregnate, breed their own free labor, which is what I believe happened to Fortune and to Sarah, her daughter, because I did a little DNA match. I I tested to see are the surnames of my my family's indenturing um, families, (laughs) are they a me? And they are. Wow. Wow. There's, I just felt like I, we all, everybody listening as well, drinking from a fire hose the last, you know, five, 10 minutes. I mean, there's just so much <laughs> there, right? And w- one of the things I want to do is 
I'm trying to figure out how to do this well so mm-hmm. that we can give people enough of the book that they they're which I think they're already in, in enraptured by it, but also not so much they're like I already know the story. I'm not going to get the book because I want. Oh everybody yeah, I to get, go it. get the yeah. book. I mean, it's so so helpful. So here's what I'd love to do. I want to I, I want you to uh, briefly walk us through the book, and then I want to talk about the the how you wrote the book because I do want to encourage people. Not everybody's going to look at their past and write a book out of it. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that everybody should be doing the hard work that you've done yeah. in their own lives because yeah. for, for the aforementioned reasons and so much more, it is so incredibly, I'm in the middle of that right now because, you know, my, my mother is Italian, my father is Guatemalan, and there's so many um, wow. f- uh, family uh, sins, family yeah. trauma. There's so many things that have carried over yes. to myself and my 11 siblings Mm-hmm. that I think are being broken in this generation. And I don't mm-hmm. I don't just want to look at that and be like, oh, that's cool. That's mm-hmm. that's great that we're doing that. I need to know, I want to know the who, what, when, where, and why. So I'm in the beginning stages of writing sort of a memoir of our family. Good. And not, not just the history, wow. but the, the present stuff. There's been, I grew up in a horrible situation. My dad mm. uh, verbally, emotionally, physically abused us. Oh. In so many ways. And he's such a different man now. He's so mm. now in his sixties, he's so, I mean, really, I can't, yeah. I can't attribute it to other, other than God changed him 10, yeah. 15 years ago. You mm-hmm. wouldn't recognize current dad to the past dad mm. and all those things. I want to like explore. I don't just want to take it for granted. So after we go through the book a little bit, I want to talk through how you did it because mm-hmm. I do think I want people to leave this conversation saying, whether I write a book or not, whether I do the in-depth uh, uh, research that that Lisa did, everybody should be figuring out who they came from, where they came from, and why things are happening in their lives in the way that they are. Um, so obviously, we're talking about fortune, how race broke my family in the world, and how to repair it all, a book 30 years in the making, as you've said. Mm-hmm. Um, walk us through the book. I, I want to begin okay. with this um this uh, dedication that you have in the book. I want to read that and then I'll let you loose. Mm -hmm. You dedicate this book to all my relations who struggled under the weight of oppression, stretching your necks to catch a glint of warmth from the sun. Behold the sun. Mm. I I thought that was so beautiful. I had to stop and read it a few times. Uh, I spent longer than I should have on this this dedication because it, it just <laughs> it felt like there was so much there. There was a lot of weight and a lot of freedom simultaneously in that statement. So walk us through the book, and then we'll go from there. So the book um, is is broken up into three parts. The first part is the roots of race in America. And uh, the second part is the fruits or the, the degradation and the resistance, which is basically the fruits of race in America, this construct. And the third part is how do we repair what race broke in our world? And so um, the first part, of course, the first chapter is fortune. It's her story that we just went through. Um, we move from there into three different um, ancestors who lived at different times in different places whose stories exemplify the roots of race. One of those pieces is, is the question of identity and how, how confused identity is because our stories have been intentionally um, obscured, intentionally stamped out, intentionally erased as a, as, um, a mechanism, as a, as a strategy for control and domination. Another one is Leah's story. Leah Ballard, the last enslaved woman in our family, mm. um, where we talk about the, the, uh, uh, the, 
untold loss of people who lived um, enslaved. And she was enslaved in South Carolina. And one of the pieces of research that I did was to ask the question, just what would it have been like? And why, why did she have, in our family story, she had 17 children, but only on the census, we can only see 12. And all of them were born um, around, were, were conceived and born around the time of the Civil War. But she was 29 when the Civil War ended. So, you know, she was, you know, had children before that. It's very possible she had five children that we don't know about before that, but they're never, ever anywhere. So it's very possible that those children either died or were sold away into deeper into the South or gifted to family members who then traveled them deeper into the South. We, we think probably Georgia because we have a lot of DNA there. So when we ask the question of the roots of race, what I came to um, in that first section is that the roots of this construct called race in America exist. They were planted in the very beginning. Yep. Um, and they exist because choices were made at various junctures in order, not just, they, you know, that nobody was saying, I want to go crush black people more today. <laughs> was, right, nobody right. was saying that. Instead, what they were saying is um, we need to protect our power and the we is white men. And so in order to protect their power, they exacted, basically they waged war on black bodies and minds and futures and hopes and dreams in order to control and contain us so that we could provide no cost labor so that their profit margins would be increased. That was the bottom line in every single generation. Then in chapters, in part two, four chapters, we look at the resistance. We look at the result of it and, and the fruit of it and the degradation of it and the resistance and rebellion against it. So um, we, we are the great migration, you know, my, my great grandmother, Lizzie, um, Lizzie Johnson was a part of that great migration. We trace her story. Um, I love, I actually love her story. Um, the way that it's done, it's done kind of in a time traveling way where you're bouncing between eras of her life. And, um, and then you end up, um, in Philadelphia where I am right now. Um, and then, uh, the Reynaldo and Anita that, are Caribbean. And so I had to do a huge amount of research on the Caribbean because I really didn't know anything. Um, and they came to America via Puerto Rico. So we look at the resistance strategies that were developed by the Africans in Puerto Rico and how they adopted those and passed those down. Um, and then Sharon, who resisted and joined the rebellion of the 1960s, she was a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and helped to open the Philadelphia office here, here in Philly, just right up the road from where I am right now. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, really, like, really, like, yes, really. About seventeen years old, she joined SNCC, and um, and she was dated Stokely Carmichael, <laughs> and so so. There's all of that. Those stories are there. You walk through the streets of Philadelphia with my mom and Stokely Carmichael and have conversations, and but also, um, you know, one block from where I'm living right now is the elementary school where she grew up, and it's there that she learned that she was less than. And so, whenever I walk past that, I'm, I'm reminded of that. Um, because there were two schools in her community, a white school and a black school. And her next door neighbor was white and he went to the white school and her mother, my, my grandmother, Willa tried to get her in. And, um, and they told her you're out of district. Hmm. You can't, you can't go to this white school two blocks away that your neighbor is going to. So she had to go to the black school 
And in that school, there were only, in her class, there were only four honor students. Um, and she was one of them. And, and what that meant is that she got to be released from class to go run errands for the teacher. So as an honor student, she really wasn't allowed to learn. And so, and there's more, there's much more to that story. And then there's me, um, you know, and the resistance uh, that, um, that I joined in Ferguson and Charlottesville and, and other spaces, um, immigration reform in America. But especially um, the thing that blew my mind was that my own faith story intersects with the race story in America because it, it was born in uh, the context of white evangelical America at exactly the time when the religious right was, was being born. And so we talk about that and how the religious right uh, manipulated manipulated um, people of faith in order to gain political power that would continue to entrench the power of white men. So all the way through from fortune to me, that is the pattern. White men enacting systems and structures and laws that entrenched their power. And I, I'm not saying white women either. The only white women who get to benefit from that are white women that protect white male power. It's true. If, if white women go against that, they may as well be a slave. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, before we get on to part three, I, I was mm-hmm. just I was just thinking about. So I, I, the reason I want to I want to spend a, the bulk of our time on part three, the repairing, because that's where we are, right? That's mm-hmm. where that's where we. But let's not move too quickly beyond the roots and the resistance. Mm-hmm. Um. I was, I was, uh, I posted this video last night on social media, um, mm. with Jane Elliott. Mm, yeah, uh, I saw that. Oh, you did? Okay. Mm-hmm. I shared so, it actually. <laughs> oh, nice. So yeah. I, I was going to, I was going to describe it for people, but actually I think I'm going to, for the sake of what I want to say next, I think I'm going to actually just play the audio into the mic. Um, mm. because I want to, I have a, I have, I have a question that I, even though I've asked this multiple times, multiple different people, I still don't understand it. And I want to mm-hmm. learn from you on this. So let me just play okay. this clip and then okay. uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Let me see if I can. We killed how many Japanese people with two atomic bombs? And they forgave us. You want to talk about forgiveness? You want to talk about changing this thing? I cannot understand how Japanese people can stand the sight of any of us. And yet they do. I cannot understand why black people who have been subjected to the ugliness that they've been subjected to in this country can get up every morning and go to work among us and not be absolutely furious. And I don't understand why we allow white people to behave the way they do. I don't understand that. And my third graders, after they'd gone through the exercise, couldn't understand it and wouldn't tolerate it. Mm. And when they went up to junior high, and a junior high teacher used the N-word. One of my my former students said, if you're going to use that word, I'm going to go out in the hall until you stop using it, because we don't use that word in this school. That was a sixth, a seventh grader wow. who told his teacher off. When we have enough students who are willing to confront people who are making racist, sexist, ageist, homophobic statements, we're going to be better off. We mm-hmm. have got to stop tolerating the intolerable. If it's intolerable for my black cousins and every black person on this earth is one of my cousins, if it's intolerable for them, it's intolerable for me. I will not tolerate it. I will not tolerate it. That is not that. 
I am required not to tolerate that kind of treatment for the people who are related to me. And that's every person on the face of the earth. If your ignorance is such that you'll mistreat somebody because of your ignorance about the color of their skin, don't do it around me. Mm. Number one, I've been threatened with death lots of times. Now mm. I say, go for it, fool. My husband died four years ago. Being with him would not be a bad thing for me. Mm. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Mm. Living a worthless, useless life is much worse than dying. Yeah. I love Jane Elliott. Oh, is she amazing? I love her. I love that last yes. part too, where she says yeah. living a worthless, useless life is way worse than dying. Totally agree yeah. there. That's why Let's Give a Damn is here. Yeah. Well, let's let's w- walk backward through that video. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things that stuck out to me and that I mm-hmm. constantly ask myself and that Jane so eloquently spoke of in that clip there, in that interview, mm-hmm. how in the world mm-hmm. do you, Lisa Sharon Harper, mm-hmm. each and every day mm-hmm. get up and walk among white people mm-hmm. and work among white people Mm-hmm. and live among white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just said, we started this conversation now. We could talk for hours on this eminent domain bullshit that has taken so much property and possessions from black people. I was, I, I read uh, last week, I read, or I finished reading um, How the Word Is Passed, Clint Smith's new book, which is just mm-hmm. tremendous. Mm-hmm. And in that, in the last section, he gets to New York City, mm-hmm. where I live, and he he's talking about these huge chunks of land that were thriving black communities, Mm -hmm. full of commerce, full of life, doing Mm -hmm. well, lots of money, lots of stuff Mm -hmm. in those communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And under the guise of eminent domain, those properties, entire neighborhoods cleared out. These people had to go live in Central Park back then because they had nowhere to go because the property they had bought and paid for, that they had worked for decades to build up into mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. just swept out from underneath them. No reason mm-hmm. other than we're the white man in power. Yeah, that's and then, right. And then, and then, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the, the very same things happening to your blood relatives, your oh, people yes. in Philadelphia. In the 20th century. In the 20th century, not in the 17th century, not, Mm -hmm. you know, 400 years ago, like we were talking Mm -hmm. about. This is like, this is recent. Yeah. So a question I've asked others, and I want to ask you is, how do you do it? Like very practically Mm -hmm. speaking, yes, people are more than ever against these horrific things that have happened in the past, present, and are still happening, you know, sorry, in in the past, and are still happening in the present. But you still have to exist among the people yes. whose ancestors <clears throat> did all these horrible things That's right. to your relatives. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how, as we sit in parts one and part two of the book, you know, Roots and the rep in the, in the resistance, mm-hmm. how do you practically do it? Mm. Well, I mean, I have to say the resistance comes in many forms and part of the, like the most, probably the most important is the spiritual and soul resistance. It's the soul force that beats through the entire story. Mm-hmm. It's Betty Game who is um who who buys land. Actually, it owns land. This is Fortune's daughter, um, my my five times great aunt or six times great aunt. Um, Betty Game 
uh, buys land at, at a discount from one of the sons of the family that she's indentured to, the Day family, right? So I know there was something going on in there. There's some kind of connection in there because there's too many things that are, that are like too enmeshed. But she does own land. And I went and visited that land. I know where that land is. I stood on that land. It's beautiful land. It's like right off of a river. And, um, and it's actually a lot of land. And so, but there was an extra black tax that was levied on black women who were free in Maryland um, in the colonial era. And it turns out homegirl refused to pay that tax. Mm. Now the tax collector literally in his records, you know, he goes door to door and he collects the taxes and he, he has, a, he wrote in his letter, in his records, Betty game of fortune of the fortune stock um, said she would not pay the taxes. And it turns out she never did, never mm-hmm. did, but um, was eventually forced off of the land when, uh, when the black population began to explode in Maryland and white men began to be afraid and they clamped down and the race laws became even more heinous before the Revolutionary War. In fact, leading up to in those years just before the Revolutionary War. And so a lot of black, free black people fled into, um, into Delaware in order to find their, in order to find a place where they could live free. And so she did, she fled into this area of Delaware that was undeveloped and most likely like marsh or swamp land, which is the norm um, I found for black people who were escaping um, uh, subjugation. They lived in the swamps usually. And, um, and, and, but that's where she found her freedom. But so how did she do it? She did it by saying, hell no, I won't go. <laughs> I'm not doing it. How did Lizzie do it? She left, you know, Lizzie, when they, when they passed a law in South Carolina, right after, at the end of, of, end of reconstruction, they passed a law that said, that people of African descent could only work in two industries, two fields, either as in field labor or in domestic labor. Does that remind you of anything? They were trying to reinstate slaveocracy after the end of Reconstruction. That happened because of a choice that white men made to, to benefit themselves. They pulled the federal troops out of the South in order to have the South play nice with the North, right? Um, uh, in, in, the, in the wake of the 1876 election where they didn't, where they couldn't figure out who won. Right. So there was right, a deal right. made. And so, uh, so Lizzie said, I can't thrive here. So she left, she left. If we sent her, if we, if we people, and I had to learn this the hard way, if we sent her the sensibilities and the friendship with, and the getting along with white people, our own souls will be crushed because at every single turn, white men in particular are really only concerned with their own flourishing. That's the bottom line. They're not willing. They're not willing to take one, one hit. They're not willing to suffer one iota for anybody else. In fact, everybody else is going to suffer for their sake, for the sake of their comfort. And so my ancestors said, hell no. And they left. And they found ways. Um, and they also were people who, um, who protected the race, who, who actually were, they served their communities around them. Lizzie, when she went north, she ended up, um, she ended up passing. She never told anybody she was white, but she never told anybody she was black because that was her survival mechanism. Um, and uh, when she was found out, she was put in the kitchen and made a baker 
And in the middle of the depression, she made the bake. She take, she took her baked goods home to this same community that I'm living in and fed them off of those baked goods in the middle of the depression. Um, so, you know, how do we do it? We resist. We say, hell no, we won't go. I'm not going to allow my body to be subjugated for your comfort. Um, at least not, at least not on a regular basis. I'm not going to choose it. Right. And I'll fight it. Now, another way that we do it in mass as a, as a people, um, Donald Schreiber wrote a, a really Shriver wrote a really great book called An Ethic for Enemies. And in that book, he was the former president of Union Theological Seminary. In that book, he actually says, in post-war situations, people have to figure out how to live together. Like think about think about Bosnia. Think about, you know, after the Bosnia Accord, you know, the Dayton Accord rather, um, where they have now figured out that they're going to, they're not going to carve up the country. They're going to live in one country together, Bosniaks, Croats, and Serbs, who literally have just been killing each other for several years, right? So who literally starved each other to death in, 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 um, in Sarajevo. So how do you live? How do you go to the grocery store? How do you stand in a checkout line with people who were trying to kill you just, just last year? There's got to be, he says, some measure of forgiveness, of releasing of the debt that they owe you. This person standing next to you in the checkout line killed your brother. He owes you your brother. Mm. He took your brother. But your brother can't come back. Not coming back. He can't pay that price. So if we want to find the beloved community, if we want to live within the beloved community, we have to, we have to do the hard work. This is the hard work of those who have lived on the other side of oppression, on the underside of it. We have to do the hard work of releasing the debt that cannot be paid by the ones who oppressed us. Um, Elmwood, the community that Hiram lived in and actually had a whole block of homes in is not coming back. That, that block that he owned is now the I-95, mm. right? It is, it's a gas station on top of it. It's not coming back. Now I do, I want reparations. I want, I want repair yes. of what was taken. Legacy was taken. That wasn't just one home. That was a block of homes. That was a lot of land that was seized and paid pennies on the dollar. So Hiram only had enough money after, after that deal, that eminent domain to pay for one home in South, in South Philly, where he housed three generations of the family in that home. And so there's reparations that need to be paid, but I, I need to forgive, I need to release the debt of that community that was broken. Yeah. Because it's not coming back. Yeah. Right. And that's for my sake, because oppression creates a toxic tie. Yep. It creates a spiritual tie, a toxic tie between oppressed and oppressor. And it can actually, it can create this thing where I think I have to beg you to give me what I need. I need you to be convinced to give me reparations. I need you to be convinced to give me justice, to give me schools that have books. I need you to be convinced to give me food that is edible rather than brown lettuce and green meat, right? 
I need, I need you white men to be convinced. But what if I say, I release you. Mm. You can go now. I don't need you. And instead, I do two things. I look inward and I see that the image of God is also in me, not only in you. I have the ability to build what I need. I have the ability to, to exercise dominion in this world, to exercise agency, to vote, to run for office, to do the things that actually help to shape the world in this democracy. And I, I also have the ability to push back when you try to look, run us off the cliff of, of fascism. But I also have God and I can turn to God and I can say to God, all right, God, you ante up. You move that mountain. You bring that cattle in a thousand hills because I know it's your delight to give your children what they need. So I still have the need. I've released my oppressor from giving it because I know they don't have it. They have $5 and, and they, they owe me a hundred. And if I go to my grave demanding the other $95, I'm going to go to my grave with a $95 deficit. So I'm going to say instead to the guy holding five bucks and says, gives me five bucks. All right, I'll take your five and I release you from the 95 that you just don't have. But now I'm turning to God and I'm saying, God, now you ante up. And I'm turning to my own soul. I'm turning to my own core. I'm turning to my own agency and I'm going to work for it. Mm. And I'm going to get it because God provides for God's children. How do you, in light of everything you just said, which I think you just beautifully encapsulated part three of the book, chapter eight, truth telling and reckoning, chapter mm -hmm. nine, reparations as repentance, and chapter 10, forgiveness in the beloved community. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we could spend, I could spend hours talking to you about that, and maybe we'll do that on another, you know, on an, another time. Mm -hmm. But how do you, so the, the beautiful analogy that you just shared, which is you release your oppressor mm -hmm. from paying everything back because they mm -hmm. cannot. And honestly, if they, even if they could, they would not. Mm -hmm. So they've got five and they owe you a hundred, mm -hmm. but it seems like what's happening right now in our current day, society, societally, culturally, and even politically mm -hmm. is they don't even want to give you the five. That's right. Even though the That's five right. is yours. Oh yeah. No. So how do you, and how do you balance mm -hmm. trusting God and your own agency to get mm -hmm. shit done in life and you don't have to depend on your oppressor anymore mm -hmm. while also still rightfully holding your hand out and saying, the five is mine. Yeah, and we're, and we're I'm not holding my hand out, I'm holding my fist out. Holding your fist out. So that's, yeah. that's, that's great, great correction. So how do, you, <laughs> how do we demand reparations? Mm -hmm. First of all, how do you as a black woman demand reparations? Me as mm -hmm. a Latino kind of white dude, mm -hmm. Uh, demand reparations on your behalf. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, which I've been doing and will continue to do because I am mm -hmm. fully bought in. There's no mm -hmm. change in my mind on the fact that we must, mm -hmm. both for black people in this country and for Native Americans and any other oppressed peoples in this mm -hmm. country, we owe them reparations. Yes. So how, do, how where's that balance? How do you hold the balance of like, God, you're in control mm -hmm. according to your tradition and mine, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but also give me what is owed. Right. So reparations is simply repair. I think that we have to make a real choice in another choice. We are literally in, a, in an inflection point in our nation. This year, our nation will choose its future. 
this year, our nation in this year's election will choose whether we are going to run off the cliff of fascism or we are going to try to snatch back democracy this year, because right now votes are going to be, are, are being planned to be suppressed. And right now electors are being appointed that are, are committed to subverting the will of, of the people in order to place people in office who would go along with fascist and authoritarian rule. That is a choice we are making this year. So this year, we are at a moment where we can choose to repair what race broke in the world, or we can continue to walk forward, struggling in at war with the image of God in this land, trying, and I'm talking about the, the, the steady march of, of war that white men have waged against the image of God in this land in order to secure their own power and bank accounts. That is what we are facing. The only reason that we are facing voter subversion right now is so that white men can retain their bank accounts and their power. That is the only reason. Yep. In fact, you just take it to Manchin himself. We could have had voter um, we could have had a, a fix to the Voting Rights Act, but Manchin held back. Why? Because Manchin has a monetary investment in the status quo. Monetary, as in his millions are caught up in, in companies that do not want him to, um, to, to exact voting rights, even though the vast majority of the people in his state want it, need it. They need to have the images of God in them. Um, lifted from from the oppression that's on them, the the economic oppression, and they are tied together. So what we have a choice that we are making this year. And Dr. King said in his book, um, Where Do We Go From Here?, which is actually right over my left shoulder here. um, Dr. King said in his book, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but in the first chapter, he says that the segregationists, and we should read white nationalists or white Christian nationalists, would rather have an American form of fascism than democracy if democracy demands equality. Mm. And so that is the choice. And right now, um, the GOP as a party is choosing fascism rather than to choose democracy because democracy now in this shifting demo- in the shifting demography Um, where within 23 years, one generation, and it's already there in the first and second grade and kindergarten, we are going to have a majority people of color nation where the majority of leaders eventually will be people of color. No longer after 500 years of establishment on this land and really 3000 years since the, uh, the advent of the Greek empire, since that time, people of European descent, men of European descent have never been in a situation where they are, they have to be subject to the will of other people. They have mm-hmm. always gone to another land and imagined they should be ruling there. And eventually through guns, germs, and steel, they, they got it. They actually won um, dominion over that land, usually through war. So they have been a, in a constant drumbeat of war for thousands of years, but this is shifting. They're already in the minority globally. Now, in 23 years, in America, the the most diverse democracy and capitalist society in the world, they will not be the assumed rulers. And they are, their panties are- Shaking in their boots. 
yes, they do not know what to do. They are trying, they're still fighting for it, but we have a choice. Yeah. We do not have to go down the road of war, of a second civil war. That is really where this is leading. We do not have to go down the war, the, the road of the subjugation of, of the many in order to secure the peace of the, quote, peace of the few. It's not peace. In fact, the one of the biblical um, concepts that I talk about in my last book is shalom, right? And one of the central concepts of shalom is you can't have peace for some when there is no peace for others. It just doesn't exist. What you have is no peace. That's what you have. So, so what do, what do we have then? The process is the thing. The process of repair is what repairs. It's not just the check. When I talk about reparations, I'm not talking about a check. A check will be part of it, but it's not, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how do you repair what race broke? What race broke first and foremost was the image of God in the other. It failed to recognize it. It failed to bow to it. It failed to recognize their divine call to exercise stewardship of the land that they were on and their own lives. And so those first explorers that were given an edict by Pope Nicholas V, who said to his friend of the family that came to say, hey, I, I need a blessing. I'm going to go exploring. He, and Pope Nicholas V said, hey, I'll give you a blessing. Um, I, you have the, the right now to claim uncivilized land for the throne and enslave its people. That was, that was, that's what he said. And that's what got us the world as we know it today. That was where the break happened. That was the moment of the break because it, it did not recognize these people's right to exercise dominion on their own land. So reparation must first begin with the practice of going to the people and recognizing their right to have dominion over this moment over their own repair and to say to them, as David said to the Gibeonites, when the Gibeonites came to him and said, Saul tried to kill all of our people. And David went, ah, that's why there's a drought in our land now. And David could have said, oh, I'm so sorry for you and sent them away. As we have done to African-Americans in this country, we are the only people group on American soil that have never received reparations for any of the oppression that we have endured here on a federal level. Um, he could have done it. He could have said, okay, sorry for you and bye. Um, but he didn't. He could have said, sorry for you. I'll figure it out and I'll get back to you. He didn't even do that because that would have snatched the ability for those Gibeonites to exercise dominion over the moment, over this moment. And it would have failed to recognize yet again, their God-given divine call to exercise stewardship over their own lives and over their own land and over their world over the world. So what does he do? He does the third option, the good option. He does the just option. He does the, the option that ends up healing the land. He says, what do you say we need to do in order for things to be made well for you? Mm -hmm. And you know what? They tell him because they've already had their council meeting. They come prepared. Right. And it's costly. And he does it with no questions asked. He simply bows to the image of God in them and does it. And guess what? What happened did not happen on his watch. It happened on the previous king's watch, King Saul. And yet he recognizes that if it's going to be repaired, 
it has to be repaired by him. Yes, it did not happen on his watch, but right now they, his watch, his people are bearing the consequences of the choices that were made way back. We are in that space right now today in America. We are bearing the consequences of the choices that have been made before us and we are still making today. We are running off the cliff of fascism because we have made, we are making choices again to secure white male domination. Dr. King said it very, very clearly. He said, in fact, it's not just Dr. King, but it's, it's when you look at the civil rights movement, what were they facing? What was Bull Connor? What was Jim Clark? Jim Clark and Bull Connor, what was um, the governor, Governor Faubus? They were Southern iterations of fascism. They were, in, they were um, enacting a fascist authoritarian government on black bodies in the South. You want to talk about fascism? Black people know something about black fascism. We have endured it. We endured it. That's what slaveocracy was. Each little plantation was its own little fiefdom, fascist fiefdom. So we are not going back. And our nation is about to run off that cliff because the very same people who fought to, in, to in, encase slavery in American law and the very same people who fought to maintain white, pure white space um, and, and segregation are the same people who are driving voter suppression today, yep. voter subversion today, gerrymandering today in order to do what they've always been doing. But guess what? There are more of us than there are of them. Yeah. And I say us, not black people. I mean, Americans who love and want and believe that it is possible for us to get to this beloved community. But all we need to do is we need to choose it. Yeah. The the only reason that that the the only reason that it sometimes feels impossible to make this shift that we've been talking about is because those that are in, those that have the microphone right now, they're not in the majority. But they seem like they're the majority. They seem yeah. like they're the louder voice because they've got the microphone. Mm-hmm. Well, take the micro microphone away from the little man, yes. and and all of a sudden you realize, oh, that man isn't so big. Um, That's right. I mean one of the one of the one of the most tangible ways that I think, just b- jumping off of what you're talking about, the voter the voter suppression and all mm-hmm. these things that we're seeing in our political sphere right now, mm-hmm. one of the most tangible ways that I think we can pay reparations, not the only one by far is to get more involved politically. Yes. You know, in from 2015 to 2020, I not 2015, 2016 mm-hmm. when when we actually and horrifically, you know, with the help of Russia of course, elected Donald Trump to the presidency. Yes. From that until the end of his presidency, when a lot of his followers tried to over, overthrow our government because they weren't happy with the decision, I was mm-hmm. very like just get like not excited about people getting involved in politics. The Democratic Party hates us. The Republican Party hates us. There's no there's no mm-hmm. way that we get more parties involved. We're decades mm-hmm. away from, you know, having that sort of, uh, you know, bigger, you know, bigger table that mm-hmm. that Canada and all over Europe, they have. So I was very like, you know, just not excited about helping people get elected into office. Mm. But 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 that has changed, shift, mm-hmm. shifted in my life over the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
as I've realized more that the Democratic Party also hates the people that they're serving in so many ways, um, <laughs> and that there's there, we need to see like huge amounts of redemption and cleaning house yes. in that party as well. Yes. And, and just last week, I think these conversations are going hand in hand. Um, I interviewed uh, Amanda Littman, who was the email director for Hillary Clinton. And then they, mm. then she and her co-founder went and started Run for Something. And Run mm. for Something is dedicated to getting uh, progressive young people in office. They have mm. 102,000 young people in the pipeline right now. 102,000 young wow. people that want to run for office. Wow. They have endorsed over 2,000 candidates. They've seen 700 elected. And the majority, over half, are women and mostly people of color. And so mm. I do think that one of the most strategic ways, I've been so excited about politics last week, ever since talking to Amanda, <laughs> yeah. and it is that we need to grab that fucking microphone away from That's the, it. The grab, powerful, the you, grab the grab mic. Grab the mic. Grab the mic. And say, it's over. It's Hashtag over. Hashtag grab the mic. Your That's right. reign of terror is done. Yeah. You are not the loudest voice anymore. No. And people of color and and white people who support people of color and who do who are in favor of paying reparations, that's the majority voice now. Mm -hmm. So we need to mm -hmm. take the microphone away from you. We need to elect more people mm -hmm. of color uh, to office. I, I was so I was so in, I was never discouraged. It just it just showed Donald Trump's true colors when he went at when he when he named the squad. Right. And when he went after the right. squad all the time, Alexandra, Ilhan, Ayana and Rashida, like when he went after these women of color, it I mean, it, it was just it was him exposing himself for who yes, he is. That's right. But it was also very telling. White men oh, in yeah. power get really, really loud when they are scared of something and mm -hmm. they are scared of women and people of color getting into office. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I think all that to say, that little rambling was to back up what you're saying, but also to say, I do think one of the most tangible ways that we can pay reparations in these next few years, starting with this year, right now, right now. everyone needs to get, you need to put your dollars behind these candidates. That's you right. need to put your support, put their signs in your yard, uh, share it with your neighbors, get involved, mm -hmm. volunteer. Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to see tangible change in this country, if we're going to see various ways of reparations being paid out in these next you know, few years, mm -hmm. one of the most pivotal ways we can do that is by electing people of color to office. That's right. Stacey Abrams, yes. you need to be flooding her, her campaign. You need to be flooding Raphael Warnock's campaign. With, with finances, because these these are critical, critical races, particularly in Georgia. Um, and we think of Georgia as like being racism light because they had a black mayor, you know, Andrew Young, and, you know, they've, they've had a lot of black leaders. Well, of course, because it's the South and there's a lot of black people and they also have Morehouse and Spellman and all the rest, like the leaders are coming from that space. But it also has been a heinous, heinous state in terms of race from the times of, of enslavement, of slaveocracy. And so this is, this is an opportunity for the whole nation to shift as that state shifts. Um, so we need to be flooding those campaigns and all of the campaigns, all of the campaigns of people of color and especially black women. Yes. Um, and so I, I think that, but I don't want to end there. I mean, you know, no, my, no, chapter no. On, my chapter on reparations, it, it, it says explicitly, the process is the thing. And so we need to ask the question, what have black people said that reparations must require? Just like David did to the Gibeonites, what do you say? So we need to ask, what do you say? 
And we can look at the Black Manifesto of the 19, early 1970s. We can look at the, at the vision for the beloved community that the movement for Black lives has already painted on their website. It is beautiful. It is basically the kingdom of God. What they're saying is we want shalom, right? And then we can look at HR 40, which is all it's asking for is a study of what reparations would require and how, would, how could we do it. We need to pass HR 40. We need to pass the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Act, um, Commission Act, which would bring to America a South African-style truth commission and, um, and follow-up work that would actually be able to enact what that truth commission tells us needs to happen in order for re repair to be made real in our world. So we need to move forward, and we need to move forward by listening and then following. That's beautiful. As we begin to wrap up, you've been, this has been a deeply meaningful conversation. I will talk with you anytime about anything. As we begin to wrap up, I want to go back to, there's two things I want to point out. You began our conversation talking about your six pages of acknowledgement mm -hmm. in the back of the book. Yeah. That is, whenever I see, that that doesn't, that only impresses me when I read authors that go that far. Because it, it mm -hmm. when, when I see someone just thank like five people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think you don't truly know that this was a team effort to get mm. here. You think mm. more of yourself than you ought to. But when mm. I see someone like yourself writing this book that is, is so deeply meaningful to you and mm. it spans, you know, 400 years of history, and then you have these multiple pages of acknowledgement, that to me tells, that tells me, and it's telling everyone reading the book, that you have a right view of yourself, mm. that you know your place in this story. And that you know that you couldn't have done it without all of these people, including your, you know, these, you, we, we talked about your two therapists, uh, yes. you know, during the first pandemic year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a real beautiful thing. At the beginning of the book, you have this acknowledgement of country. Yeah. Which I think is mm -hmm. just so incredibly beautiful, so incredibly meaningful. Mm. Talk about why it's important for you, even you, with whose history points back to your people, your ancestors being taken out of your land, brought to this yeah. land to be enslaved. Even mm -hmm. you feel the need to oh, yeah. sit in the reality oh, yeah. of this land, even though I was brought here against my will, this land is not my own. That's right. And we need to acknowledge whose land we are living on, whose, whose land we have lived on. So talk about the importance of opening this book with this acknowledgement of country. There's a there's a point in the book of Acts where the writer of Acts says that God ordains where the people live and 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 steward where people live and steward the land over the course of time. And therefore those who were indigenous people here in North America and South America and the Caribbean um because those are the places where the book treads right so that where the stories tread those those people were ordained by God mm. to to serve that land, to steward that land, to cultivate it, develop it, and protect it. And it was sin against them, and it was war against God when those first explorers came and claimed the right of dominion, stole it, snatched it from them. And I think that our land suffers because of that to this day. And so, you know, William Darity, the economist who I quote actually later in the book, I think in the reparations chapter, um, definitely in that chapter, he says that 
you know, if we had, if African-Americans had gotten their 40 acres and a mule that were promised to them at the end of, um, at the end of slavery in the midst of reconstruction, we wouldn't be having this reparations conversation today. But I, I'm also mindful of the reality that the indigenous people of this land say, you can have, you can have your, um, you know, the mule, we'll take the 40 acres <laughs> because the 40 acres are ours. The 40 acres were given to us by God, by creator. And so, you know, that complicates the narrative. It complicates, even complicates the process of repair. But we have to deal with the complexity because if we don't, all we're going to do is we're going to end up becoming oppressors after having been oppressed. We're going to buy into and, and forward the white supremacist narrative of claiming land um, and, and erasing the in indigenous people who came before. So repair for me cannot mean subjugation for others. Repair for me must mean repair for others as well. And so we begin with acknowledgement. We begin with acknowledgement of their, of their service to the land, of their protection of the land, of their cultivation of the land and their relationship to the land and their divine call to steward the land. So that's what I did in the beginning of the book. And I didn't get that from myself. I never heard of acknowledgements of country. I've heard of the protocols in native country and in, in, in Indian country here in America. But when I went to Australia and I've been there a few times and I met a woman named Brooke Prentice, um, who is now, I believe, I think she's actually the director of Tear Fund in, um, or not, the, she's working with Tear Fund or maybe World Vision in, in, um, uh, in Australia. She and I had a conversation and she said, you know, she taught me that the value of the acknowledgement of country that the Aboriginal people fought for in parliament in Australia and, and won, won this, look at this, this law that was passed a few years ago. If anyone holds a public event anywhere, whether it's a board meeting or it's a, a rally or it's a conference anywhere in Australia, they must offer an acknowledgement of country by law. Now, they must offer the acknowledgement of the first peoples of that land. Isn't that deep? Very oh, my deep. gosh, what? And so she said, Lisa, you need to do this. You need to offer an acknowledgement of country. I said, well, what about if somebody's already done it? You still need to do it. You need to do it wherever you speak, every time you speak to the same audience, you need to do it. So she never said that about books. But I felt like, no, I do need to do this, entering into this, this um, as people open the book, they need to be in the first page reminded of whose land this is that we are treading on in this story. That's really beautiful. I love that so much. Let's wrap up this way. In the foreword of the book, written by the great Otis Moss III, um, begins by quoting W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. This great quote about uh, Du Bois's deep belief in the black race, and he ends the quote this way, which I think, which I think per per perfectly encapsulates our conversation today. Mm. Meekness, which shall yet inherit this turbulent earth, yeah. talks about this meekness that will yet right. So it's it hasn't mm -hmm. happened yet, but mm -hmm. there's hope that it can happen. And I I've always loved the word meekness. I've always loved that going back to my tradition that Jesus calls us to be meek because mm -hmm. meek doesn't mean weak. Weak. That's right. M meek doesn't mean you don't stand up for what's right. right. It means that you know when 
and how and why to exert that powerful strength. Yes. Right? Yes. It doesn't mean that we shy, we shy back and just take all the punches on the face. It just means that when we come out punching, we're landing them in the right places. That's right. Meekness is controlled power. Yeah. Yeah. And I, growing up, I always was, was told that, you know, to, to give a, to give a person or a, 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 an animal personification of, mm-hmm. I don't know what the word for that is, you know, to personify this idea, they, they always talked about a horse and I always yes. loved horses, right? Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, these powerful, I mean, they could horsepower one, one kick and you right. were gone. But right. if this horse is broke and if this horse is properly trained and and knows who they are really beyond all that, just knows who they are. Knows their power. You could put a two-year-old kid on the back of that horse and everything's good. Everything's peachy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then when it comes time to pull, right, pull a, pull a house, uh, right. that horse, you know, knows what to do. And so I just love that. I love this book. Everybody needs to go get it, mm-hmm. Fortune. Beyond g- reading the book, ordering the book and getting it and reading it, mm-hmm. um, what should people look for as well? What should they participate? Because I know this is not just a book. You've created a whole you know, infrastructure for people really getting and living out what this book has to offer. That's right. If you are listening to this in the month of February, then this is Black History Month, and we have dubbed Black History Month Black Fortune Month. It's an opportunity for you to read fortune, to discuss what you're learning in the pages, and you can discuss it in small groups. You can download our free um, video learning companion and journal and, and discuss the book in small groups, or um, you can join in with any of the events that are happening almost every day online. And we have a calendar of events Um, and then join us for the days of action at the end of the month, days of action and advocacy, where we're going to be pushing for repair and truth-telling in America, calling our representatives on February 28th, saying, we want you to repair what race broke in the world, and we want you to tell the truth about it. And then on the 1st of of March, we're carrying it forward into the month of March, and we're meeting with um, leaders within the the group, the network that has come together in order to launch Black Fortune Month. We are meeting with uh, leaders on Capitol Hill who are pushing forward HR 40 and the TRHT Commission Act. So we are going to do this. Um, I did not write this book just just to have people read about my family. I wrote this book in order to to heal the world for the next generations of my family. We're doing this. I love you, sister. Thank you so much for sharing today. And I'm inspired by you and I admire you. And thank you for writing this book and for joining us today again for another great conversation. Thank you so much, Nick. It is so awesome to talk with you. Appreciate it. Damn Givers, thank you for showing up. Thank you for spending time this week with Lisa and me. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please, please, please show up next week. That's the biggest ask because we have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.